0: Hello, and welcome to Walking with the Tengu, a podcast exploring classic texts for the modern martial artist. One of the cool things about living in our time is that we have unprecedented access to a far greater number of written works from languages and cultures than ever recorded in history. You and I can, at a moment's notice, pull up just about any classical Western work, and a vast number of Eastern classics as well. In the last few decades, even I have seen this access increase as new translations are completed and published and older translations are updated to provide greater accuracy or further depth. I remember, as a teenager, puzzling through works at the bookstore like The Book of Five Rings, The Dao Jing Jing, or The Hei Ho Cadentia, with no linguistic or cultural background trying to make sense of these works that were so far removed from my personal cultural context as to be almost meaningless at times. Sure, with some study, I've broadened my own personal toolset to approach works with greater context, but the quality and the number of translations have also broadened in the years since. Now, you and I can get works like the ones from William Scott Wilson that provide incredible cultural depth in the footnotes. Not too long ago, a book by Sasamori Junzo was released in English concerning the Koryu sword style known as Onoha Itoryu. The Itoryu, which might be translated as one sword school, and is a predecessor of many schools, including the Onoha, which just means the Ono branch. This particular school has a close connection to modern kendo, and in fact I've heard that numerous high-level kendoka also train in Onoha Itoryu. Sasamori Junzo, a well-known and high-ranking kendo practitioner himself, succeeded the system as the 16th headmaster during the Taisho period, that is, about 1912 to roughly 1926, followed by his son, Sasamori Takemi, as the 17th headmaster, and most recently, Yabuki Yuji as the 18th and current headmaster. The Regakudo is the name of the headquarters school, which was founded by Sasamori Junzo. I'd also like to point out that Sasamori Junzo was also instrumental in working with the U.S. occupational forces to prevent a complete ban on Kendo after World War II. This is important due to the Americans' perceptions that the Japanese martial arts were used as effectively brainwashing tools to turn out fanatical soldiers for the war. We might not have as well-developed Japanese martial arts today if not for the efforts of Sasamori Junzo and others. The book itself was published in Japanese decades ago in 1965 and is the result of Mr. Sasamori's research into his own school's records and historical documents. This English version was finally completed in 2023. And unlike some translations of other works, with the involvement, this one was done with the involvement not only of the school itself, but a translator who is a member of the Ryu and who is one of only two instructors currently certified by the reigakudo in the US. This means you're not just reading a text through the eyes of an English translator, but one that is deeply connected to the material that is being translated. Imagine trying to communicate a recipe to someone without ever having cooked it before. You might be able to get into the general area of the recipe, but you would never know if the nuance of the dish, the details that make it truly great, and not just a poor copy were there. This is the value, particularly with the martial arts, of having someone who knows the material translate a work into another language. Given the sometimes obtuse and poetic language that can be used in the Japanese martial arts, this is doubly important. If the original author is describing something about a sword, it helps to have someone translating who actually knows how to handle a sword. Now, I should note, that this is the first book of five that will make up the full text in Japanese. So, if you happen to be able to read Japanese, you can find it easily on the original, easily on the Japanese Amazon website. So, it was with great interest that I ordered Book One of the Secrets of Ito-ryu by Sasamori Junzo and translated by Mark Haig. First, though, we need to address what I consider to be a bit of an elephant in the room. The book is called Secrets of Ito Ryū. In Japanese, this is Ito Ryū Gokui. Gokui is a word that might be translated as innermost secrets, like of an art or skill, mysteries, essence, or heart. The Chinese characters here are actually the the. the Goku, in this case, would be like the G in Tai Chi, which means ultimate, and E uh, as in idea. So, ultimate idea, innermost secrets, something like that. So, this is a book of the innermost secrets or mysteries of the Ito Ryu. How can it be a book of secrets if they're published in a book you can buy online? Well, Sasamori Jinzo addresses this on page 25 and 29 from his introduction written in 1965. The world was changing back then, but it was just the latest in a series of rapid and dramatic changes that had occurred to Japanese culture in the last hundred years. Beginning in the Meiji era, where Japanese culture was completely restructured, followed by the rise of the imperial military and then World War II, into the post-war rebuilding, Japanese culture had changed dramatically and rapidly several times from the era when the ryu was first formed. On my bookshelf is a collection of seven ancient Chinese strategy classics. Sun Tzu's The Art of War is but one of these classics. These were all considered top secret military secrets in the past, the possession of which could result in not only you being tortured to death, but your family as well. The ability to resist or overthrow a government is threatening to those with power. And so, they will do all they can to suppress the knowledge and tools necessary for you to challenge their power. Think of that whenever someone wants to take away your ability to do violence in the pursuit of goodness, equality, and justice. In some ways, the Koryu also closely guarded their secrets. To a certain degree, many of them still do today. There was a time when they existed as a kind of paramilitary force that could protect or overthrow the existing power structure. Letting your enemy analyze your strategy allows them to identify weaknesses to exploit. Even in modern-day jiu-jitsu tournaments, you're a fool if you're not watching past tournament footage of the people you're scheduled to compete against. You have to understand your opponent if you want to beat them. So it's not that far-fetched or hard to understand why the classical martial arts had secret training and techniques. Times have changed, though. The Ryu no longer exist as paramilitary private armies, though many modern members may still wield political or economic influence in various capacities. I think, like the sorority and fraternity organizations in higher education settings, they may not wield direct influence, but it is possible for relationships built through those organizations to extend into other spheres of influence. Either way, the Ryu aren't about to be called up to defend or overthrow the government, at least not how things stand today. So, why keep these things secret? There are no duels anymore. No one's walking around with a sword, and even owning one in Japan is an expensive and exceedingly troublesome ordeal. Sasamori Junzu even mentions that his forebears forbade their children and students from writing anything down, relying instead on muscle memory and repetition. It was against the rules to share what was taught and Mr. Sasamori laments the loss of these things as people have died. His first comment on this subject is a call to research, investigate, and communicate what is left to future generations. He says that it is, quote, needed today in order to preserve the cultural history of the Japanese people, end quote. Now, there's an important distinction here that needs to be clarified. I don't think he is suggesting that the Koryu need to become historical preservationists, trying to encase the Ryu in a kind of museum, a static preservation embedded in glass to be admired from afar, but never touched. Uh, This was a man deeply embedded in his art and in the world of Kendo. I suspect he cared about the application of his art even in the modern world. Otherwise, why bother writing all this down in the first place? He mentions the Kishimon, the blood oath that many Ryu still use, when initiating new members. This included the threat of divine consequences if one shared the private teachings with non-members. Sasamori Junzo expressly states that the reason he is changing this is to, one, to pass these extraordinary principles and profound techniques on to future generations of those studying the sword. Two, to publicly honor the service to society our ancestors took so much trouble to render. three, and to promote the artistic and spiritual culture unique to our magnificent country. He goes on to specifically state that communicating these principles to people who practice kendo is particularly important due to kendo being derived from Itoryu. He also says that he hopes this public disclosure will encourage new people to seek out the classical Japanese martial arts, to encourage further research, and that this will assist in the mental and physical cultivation of future generations of kendoka. He finishes with the idea that by providing a glimpse of what all this means to people who have never even held a sword, he would be, quote, extremely delighted. So yes, the book is called The Secrets of Itoryu, and yes, once upon a time, they were important military secrets. Times have changed, however, and these same principles can still be of value to the modern martial artist, and an entire new generation can learn from the blood, sweat, and tears That were shed to acquire them in centuries past. We should approach works like these with the respect they deserve. As always, there are a lot of lessons that can be gleaned from these books, but I'm going to just look at a few. To truly squeeze the full value from these works, I suggest you get a copy of the book and study it for yourself. With the classical Japanese martial arts, I have a particular penchant for looking closely at the origin stories about their founders. Some are fantastical with tales of mythical creatures, moments of enlightenment, or hard-to-believe martial feats. But as with most mythology, if you dig through the extraneous details, you often find they are the vehicle for conveying some kind of important lesson. Once I came across a Ryu whose origin story was about the failings and eventual downfall of their founder, Now, there is something special, I think, about an art that has successfully grappled with the failings of their founder and encoded it into lessons for future generations. The point being, how an art handles its own mishaps, as well as the lessons that are conveyed in mythical trappings, can say a lot about the heart and soul of a school. In a more modern twist, I just spent the last two weeks working on the principles of a technique that is named after the person who defeated one of the so-called founders of modern Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. His name and the submission he used to defeat a founder has been spread to every practitioner of this art. It has a proper name in Judo, Gyaku Garami, or as it is known today in BJJ, the Kimura, named after Masahiko Kimura, the judoka who submitted Helio Gracie in a match. I love the idea of an art taking a defeat and making the technique one of their fundamental core teachings. So, with that in mind, let's take a look at the origin story of the Itoryu. For the art of Onoha Itoryu, it is necessary to go back even further to the founder of an earlier form of the school, the Itoryu, before there were any branches or divisions. Perhaps you've heard of arts that talk about how their founder was weak and sickly who, after much training, discipline, and commitment, forged himself into the amazing martial artist he became. Not ito The founder, Ito Itosai Kagehisa, was born on an island with the name Maehara Yagoro. He is described as brawny, stronger than others, very active, and from a distance, when playing with other children, looked like an eagle making chickens scatter. He is described as a fisherman at the age of eight who impressed others with his catches. Muscular, tanned, long hair, a life of constantly swimming, jumping, running, sailing, climbing, and fishing must have made him quite the sight. Blessed with a larger-than-normal physique, which was then refined through the tough life of a fisherman, he must have been a sight to behold. We are told that, as one does, he began to look to the horizon and thought of the mainland. Now, Iaguro had been born on the island of Oshima. You might be familiar with this island as it's featured in the Godzilla series. Koji's Suzuki's Ring and its film adaptation, as well as the Pokemon franchise. Either way, it wasn't big enough for Yagoro. So one day, he grabbed a plank of wood and started swimming. Now I have to wonder, what happened to his boat? Did he lose it? Was it wrecked? Did he leave it in the care of another that needed it more? I suspect there's a story here that's been lost to time. But without a boat then, he swam with his plank to the Izu Peninsula, and made his way to Mishima Village, which, appa- where apparently the locals thought he was some kind of island goblin, come ashore, and stayed far away. Simultaneously, he took up residence in the Mishima Shrine, and did odd jobs for the elders there. So I guess they couldn't have been too scared of him, or maybe the elders were just more reasonable? Maybe they didn't have much of a choice? Regardless, this is where we find Yaguro, when a traveling swordsman named Toda Ippo came to town. <laughs> This guy apparently put on quite the show. He traveled with dozens of students and lorded his military exploits over the villagers. Hearing what a big deal he was, Yagoro challenged him to a match. Yagoro went to the shrine to receive a blessing and then wandered out alone to size up Ippo. Ippo was dressed far better than the shabby islander and started talking himself up to the crowd. Apparently he started striking fancy poses for the benefit of the onlookers and got distracted. Yaguro, for his part, focused entirely on his opponent and had a good sense of distance because he sprang forward like a bird in flight and struck Toda from the shoulder to the waist, knocking him unconscious. Now, I have to think this matches with a boken, wooden swords, as we are told that Itpo left in disgrace. He didn't die. Yaguro, we are told, was 14 years old. To our modern ears this might sound pretty young but we have to remember that this was a different time in some societies in the ancient world adulthood was considered to be at about 12 years old he may have been a young man but likely considered a man nonetheless so what's the lesson stay focused on your opponent don't get distracted by either the crowd or being overly concerned with how you look simply Owning your equipment doesn't make you a good fighter. Owning a gun doesn't make you able to handle it under stress, just as owning a violin doesn't make you a musician, let alone one that can play in front of a crowd. Ippo was too enamored with the appearance of greatness, while Yaguro just focused on his opponent, waited, and struck when the moment was right. A good lesson for any of us, no matter what martial art we train. So, what about mistakes? I mentioned earlier, it is always interesting to see how a style or art deals with the failings and mistakes of their founders and famous practitioners. If you find an art where the founder never made any mistakes, or the history doesn't keep track of lessons learned from mistakes made, well, that should probably give you pause and make you think about whether that art or style can really improve if it isn't seeking out and learning from their own mistakes. Well, Maehara Yaguro, later known as Ito Itosai Kagehisa, made some mistakes as well. Let's take a moment, though, and talk about names. Names today tend to be pretty static. It wasn't always so. In prior time periods, it wasn't all that odd to change your name to signify something major. The fluidity with which people change their names may seem odd to us, but we're also dealing with a time period where many didn't have family names either. It's funny, but even with something as simple as names... There's a gap between us and the people who live these stories. They didn't interact with the world in quite the same way as us, so how can we have anything in common with them? Well, that doesn't change how people behave. The same things that drive people to commit evil a thousand years ago are the same today. Jealousy, anger, pride, fear, and greed are all driving people to do things in the same way that they were in any period of recorded history. So while the details of cultures and time periods change, the way people act doesn't really. And it is with this thought that we find Itosai in Kyoto. A man challenged him to duel and was beaten fairly quickly. Now, it was particularly odd for... a. am sorry. It wasn't particularly odd for a defeated opponent to become the student of the person who beat him. And this man asked Itosai to be his student as well. He had several students already, in fact, and, well, this beaten man and a few of his friends joined up ostensibly to train under Itosai, when, in fact, they were looking for an opportunity to ambush and kill him, thus achieving personal fame for killing the much better skilled Itosai. While looking for the right time, they did a little information gathering and found that on prior visits, Itosai was known to spend time with a particular woman. The story says that they made friends with her and won her over with money and gifts, and it says here, quote, fooled her into joining their plot. Now, I don't know how you fool someone into joining into a plot to murder someone in the middle of the night, but that's what it says. Maybe they pretended they were just going to prank him, but I have a suspicion, based on how the story continues, that she knew fully what was happening and went along with it out of greed. Well, this woman invited Itosai over for some late night drinking and snacks. Itosai, who was used to trusting the woman, didn't think anything of it and let his guard down. She gets him soundly drunk, puts him to bed with a bug net over him, and then steals his swords and hides them. I'm getting strong Samson, Delilah, and the Philistines vibes here. She then guides 12 men to where Itosai was sleeping, and it's here that, again, I have to think this woman was far more complicit than the story's letting on. Getting him drunk, stealing his weapons, and then bringing twelve armed men to where he is sleeping? You'd have to be a special kind of stupid to not see where this was going. Well, big surprise. They burst in, cut the edges of the net, dropping it onto Itosai. They then started slashing all over the bed. I'm imagining the Nazgul in Lord of the Rings as they stab and slash the beds of the hobbits in the inn of the Prancing Pony. Well, unlike Aragorn, who had the foresight to know that the hobbits were being hunted, Ithosai was caught in the bed. He woke up in just the nick of time. Maybe he had slept off the alcohol a bit. The story does say that it was a little after midnight. He searched under his pillow for his now missing weapons, and not finding them, started jumping from side to side, eventually rolling out from under the net. Finding the remains of dinner still in the room, he started flinging bowls and cups at his attackers. And on one of them flinching, rushed in and took the guy's sword. He then fought like a madman, killing some of them, and the rest fled. There's no mention as to what happened to the woman, but I'm going to guess that Itosai wasn't quite as fond of her as he had been. What is particularly interesting here is that a section of analysis happens, and this is what I was hoping for. As you all have probably noticed, I don't mind taking a story and coming up with my own analysis— However, it's more interesting to get the analysis of the actual people who decided to record the story. We get to hear directly why they thought this story was important to not only record, but to also take the time to tell us what we should learn from it. This was a pretty near miss for Itosai. He came within seconds of losing his life. And for what reason? Not because of the great skill or cunning of his opponents. No, it was because... He had a girlfriend who got greedy and got him drunk. Sometimes it's the people closest to us who make us the most vulnerable. It is recorded that Itosai considered the lesson of this night to be particularly important, and that he made a point of teaching it to future students. Which, let me just say right here, a person who can look at his own mistakes, learn from them, and not make the same mistakes again, well, that's a person worth paying attention to. Too many of us make the same tired old mistakes over and over again, and then wonder why, air quotes, bad things keep happening to us. It's not that bad things keep happening to us, it's that we keep making the same bad decisions that get us into those situations in the first place. Itosai considered consider the root of the problem the fact that he got carried away in having fun, in having a good time, and by his own choices putting himself in a risky situation. Now, I certainly don't condone victim-blaming, The only person truly responsible for a crime is the criminal themselves. However, we are all personally going to have to take responsibility for the choices that make us vulnerable to predators. Maybe don't get drunk and walk down that dark alley. Predators look for prey. Wait for the right moment to strike, and when their prey is at their most vulnerable and least able to put up a fight. Predators don't want a hard fight. They want a quick and easy win to get whatever selfish goal they want for themselves, be it murder, rape, or theft. This is as important today as it was then. And again, while I never blame the victims for what happened to them, I also think we shouldn't make things easy on the predators. I can walk down the street and easily identify people exhibiting behaviors that make them more enticing as prey. It's very challenging to do the same with predators. Many don't exhibit predator behaviors until they are in the moment of attacking. That's kind of the point of a surprise attack. So assume the predators are out there looking for you and don't do things that make their jobs easier. This is the first lesson from Itosai's misadventure in Kyoto. As for the specific martial principles to keep in mind when you find yourself in a surprise attack, well, the text is very nice in that they give us a numbered list. One, keep out of range of your opponent's attack and see what they're up to. Two, Grab whatever you can get your hands on and randomly hurl them at your attackers to make them flinch. Three, charge your enemy and take away whatever weapons they have and use them for yourself. Four, use the tried and true method of winning by boldly crossing into the zone of death under your opponent's blade to get in close. Stick with them so they can't get away and then stab and slash into their vulnerable points. And five, take a bird's eye view of your opponent's render the final judgment of hosha from an all-encompassing perspective and completely dominate them. It then goes on to say, the ultimate lesson of hosha, which uh, I didn't research this directly, but I think is a set of techniques or kata in Onai Itoryu. but the ultimate lesson of hosha is that it teaches one to remain safe by ridding oneself of threats to his life that demand the use of it in the first place. So I guess that's kind of what I was talking about earlier. Don't do dumb stuff that puts you at risk. The text continues, telling us that Itosai was ashamed of his mistakes and spent some time thinking deeply on this. One of the things that troubled him, besides his own lack of self-control, was also that he was fooled by his, air quotes, students, and even when training them face-to-face, wasn't able to earn their respect. His response was to focus on improving his his own character. I like this. Too often, when people fall into troubles, they seek to blame everyone but themselves. They focus on the problems of others as if they have no culpability in their own circumstances and just see themselves as an innocent victim. Itosai owns up to his own mistakes, recognizes that there was more than one, and then moves to focus on how he can improve himself to address these failings. The heart of the problem, in part, came from his enjoying the pleasures of the capital. So, that very morning, before the break of dawn, he left town. The text says that this time of reflection for him was a major turning point in his life. It didn't matter how good he was with his sword. If he couldn't control his desires and emotions, they would ultimately control him. By mastering his impulses, he also came to refine his intuition and preparedness. This is one of those principles that I consider a primary tool for self-defense. Your awareness is the first line of defense for observing and detecting threats to yourself and others. If you wait for the predator to attack, you're already several steps behind by the time you start reacting this seems to be the heart of this twofold lesson offered to us by Itōsai's reflection on his mistakes so let's take a moment and look at both of these lessons the first lesson was about self-control and mastering one's desires i might call this self-discipline which is what i consider to be you choosing whether or not to act on an emotion that you feel such as seeing the thing you want not reaching but not reaching your hand out to take it. And this is something that I suspect almost everyone struggles with. It could have it could be choosing to get your work done before you play or eating a snack because you feel a craving while intellectually knowing your body does not actually need those calories. This is something that I see my own children growing their skills in and that I have often seen adults who have never learned how to control themselves fall into doing great evil. When one chooses to act on a desire without thinking about the consequences, the impacts on yourself and others, well, that's when we find out that in retrospect we could have made better choices. Anger, fear, and greed are probably the most common emotions that result in a desire that gets us into trouble and harms both us and others. If you find an emotion, like Itosai did, that leads you down a path that weakens your awareness— lessons good decision-making skills and results in vulnerability to the actions of predators, well, like I was saying earlier, why make the predator's jobs easier? If I have a penchant for snacking, I could eventually, over a period of time, lower the health of my body, making me easier prey. So, what does one do? You know, personally, I place restrictions on myself. As a general rule, I don't snack, but if I do decide to indulge in this, I select a container and eat only a portion of the snack, let's say chips. Instead of opening the bag and eating until I accidentally eat the entire bag, I'll place an acceptable portion in a bowl and eat just that, put the rest away. If I enjoy drinking alcohol, which I in fact do, and apparently Itosai did as well, then there is a line where I have had enough to drink that it starts impacting my choices. And again, I place restrictions around it and never drink any amount when I'll need to drive somewhere or if I have other people under my protection. As an example, if my wife is out doing something, I refrain from having a drink before she comes home just in case I need to go out and help her. These may seem a little silly, but they're normal, relatable examples that can apply to just about anyone. Indulgence in a desire often comes at a cost. When you feel the desire for something, pause a moment. Hold your hand back. Don't do the thing you desire to do. Be the master of yourself, despite what you feel. Then, if you decide with consideration for the consequences, still, and still decide to act, well, so be it. You will, however, have a moment to think about the impact of what you do next, what words you say, what deeds you do. Perhaps that anger you feel, no matter how justified, will cause strife and division and hate. Perhaps that pride you feel, will blind you to your failings that will ultimately be your downfall. I suspect this is what almost happened to Itosai. He was pretty good with a sword. He got comfortable and perhaps blinded himself to the hatred of his so-called students and the greed of the woman he spent time with. Each of our own lives have their own desires and emotions that drive us. Be the master of these rather than allowing them to master you. Now let's take a moment and think about the man who challenged Itosai to a duel, lost, and then proceeded to get close to him to look for a moment of ambush. This is a classic predatory behavior. I actually prefer the enemy that makes it clear he is my enemy. It is the person who acts like a friend, but who is in reality your enemy, that is the more insidious. Itosai's fame likely made him a target in this case. He was getting pretty famous, and was known in the capital as one of the best. That meant more people wanted to take him down a notch. We see this today with the loud, brash, mixed martial artists who make bold, prideful claims and then become the lightning rod for everyone else that wants to make a name for themselves. Now, maybe Itosai wasn't trying to make a name for himself. He Other stories, though, suggest to me he was kind of a colorful character who didn't mind bruising a few egos as he walked his own martial path. At one point, he was known to show up in towns and hang out a sign that declared himself to be the, quote, best swordsman under heaven, end quote, which, at first glance, does seem kind of prideful and arrogant to me. The text explains that supposedly this wasn't the case, and I recall on my first reading thinking... Yeah, right. However, I have to think of the old Gracie Challenge matches from the 1990s. There had to be a certain amount of, was it pride? Confidence? Arrogance? That caused them to take out magazine and newspaper articles offering money to anyone who could beat them? Or was it the reason that it is said in the Ito Gokui that Itosai hung that sign out for all to read? That he wanted to, quote, guard against becoming arrogant, reflected his desire to seek continuous improvement with humility, was a search for a worthy teacher, and was a fearless challenge to any skilled opponents who may have been hiding nearby. End quote. Perhaps, as I've stewed on this, I've certainly come to the conclusion that Ito Sai's sign, sign and the old Gracie challenge were motivated by similar if not the same sensibilities. There's been a similar event in the Chinese martial arts world where a pretty average MMA fighter named Xu Xiaodong challenged various chi masters and other charlatans who claimed to be able to fight. These are people that, by their own admission, claim that they can beat normal fighters, MMA fighters. No surprise, he kind of wiped the floor with these so-called masters. In all three instances, I know people considered each of these challenges to be arrogant. To go seeking a fight? Not many are going to say that that was a good idea. Yet, in the explanations, it was only the most recent, Shu Xiaodong, who didn't even claim to be the best. He just claimed that he wanted to debunk liars. Both the Gracies and Itosai sought to pull the very best out of the cracks with their apparent arrogant claims. Was it the right way to do it? I don't know. Certainly not how I would seek to improve my martial art, but then maybe that's why I'll never be the kind of person who founds his own martial style or art. Maybe the rest of us just don't have what it takes to honestly say, anyone, come test me. The lesson then is this. If you're seeking to be the best you can be, watch out for those people who resent you for it they will come looking to take you down a notch. Knowing that, then you know the reason to develop your self-control and discipline, so you don't fall into the indulgences that lead to your vulnerability, as Itosai did in Kyoto. There's a final lesson here that I think is less obvious. Simply that when you do make mistakes, when some calamity falls upon you in your life, be like Itosai and reflect deeply on it. Own up to the choices you made that led you to that point in your life, and then move forward with the discipline and intention to change yourself so you, don't, so you do not ever repeat that mistake. So from Itosai's youth fishing on a remote island, we learned about the value of an active life, and from his first duel, we learned to not be entranced by our own ego and pride. Keep your eyes on your opponent's, regardless of who else is watching. From his time traveling around, hanging a sign out, saying he was the best swordsman under heaven, we learned that if you're going to improve yourself, you will at some point attract jealousy and maybe even anger from people who want to take you down a notch, who want to see you lose. This can be a crucible for your own improvement. From his time in Kyoto, we learned a threefold lesson not to indulge ourselves in behaviors that make us more vulnerable to predators, to reflect deeply on our mistakes and make changes, to not repeat them. And finally, that regardless of your martial art, your skill at being situationally aware is the first step, the genesis, the prime mover of your ability to do anything else. As always, remember, don't just talk about philosophy, but like your martial art, live it.